inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Creativity in the brain, where can it be found? How does it differ from intelligence? And what are creative people like? I'm your host, Richard Miles. Today, my guest is Dr. Kenneth Heilman, Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of Florida and author of Surprise, a book called Creativity and the Brain. Welcome to Radio Cade, Ken. Thank you for inviting me. So, Ken, like many of our guests on this show, you spent your career in Florida, but you were born in Brooklyn. So the first thing I got to ask is Dodgers or Yankees? Let's get that out of the way first. Brooklyn Dodgers. But when they moved to L.A., I stopped being a professional sports fan. (laughs) So you didn't switch to another team. You just gave up entirely on sports. Well, you know, here was a team that was tremendously supported and actually started integration with Jackie Robinson. And what happened, because they offered him a free stadium in the park and paid for it, the hell with the fans that have been watching him for all these years. We're going to L.A. And I said, look, I don't root for businesses. The hell with this. I'm not watching this anymore. Now, was a precursor of things to come. It's teams to abandon their cities, to go to other markets and so on during the expansion years. Okay, well, now that we got that most important question out of the way, let's sort of dive straight into our topic. As you know, Phoebe and I have always been interested in the neuroscience of creativity. And I think the first time that we met, probably about 2010, it was to get your ideas and some other folks at the University of Florida we are planning a big exhibit on the neuroscience of creativity. And so we needed to get smart and we knew that you were one of the folks to talk to. So creativity is one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot and sometimes it's defined in different ways. So why don't I start by asking you to define creativity from your point of view and then how does it differ from intelligence? But let's start with that. Okay. First of all, when I was in high school, I took a public speaking course. I got to see it. But the two things I remember is start by definitions and then tell people how important it is. So we'll start with the definitions. It depends where you look up creativity for different definitions. If you go to Webster's, for example, it says productive and marked by originality. So according to them, if I sat down in front of a word processor and randomly hit keys for days and days and days, it would be creative because it would be original. Nobody probably would hit the same keys. And if I did it long enough, it would be productive. But you wouldn't feel this would be creative. I think the best definition, but it's incomplete, Barbanowski, who said creativity is finding unity in what appears to be diversity. The only problem with this definition is no mention of originality or productivity. So I think in the book and during lectures, what I define creativity is the ability to discover, understand, develop, and express in a systematic fashion novel, orderly relationships. Said in other words, finding the thread that unites. Now, a lot of people in the other definitions state it must have value. And I never understood why they put it in. If you're a great artist and uh, you never sell your painting and it burns or something, it doesn't mean that it wasn't creative. 
Even now, it has no value. So value, I'm not sure, really defines it. It defines it as far as business people, but not as far as people who produce creative products. Now, let me tell you about the second part. If you look at my yearbook at high school, all the way back then, it says Ken Heilman wants to do medical research. And what happened when I was a little boy, I looked down on my arm and I noticed I had a scar right near the elbow, but the front on the top. And I asked my mother, what is that, mom? She said, oh, when you were an infant, you came down with meningococcal meningitis. And this was 1938 or 1939. And the doctor said, we have no cure for it. He's going to die. It turns out that this doctor actually had an appointment at Columbia University. And they were working on a new drug called sulfur drugs. And he actually lifted some out of the laboratory, brought it to my house, did a cut down. That's what the scar was for gave it to me. And here it's 79, 80 years later, and I'm still here. And that really brought to mind how important creativity is. Humankind have suffered with diseases and so many other problems. And when you think about all the wonderful things that we've done when used appropriately, creativity has reduced a huge amount of suffering. So that's why it's always been a very important topic to me. So can you write it? Creativity is closely linked to raw intelligence, but it's not quite the same thing. Is that correct? Well, let me talk about intelligence and uh, creativity, okay? First of all, let me start by saying, in general, when I've written about this, I talk about three major steps in the creative process. The first one is preparation, and that's learning all the skills and knowledge that you need to be creative. The second one I call creative innovation, and that's coming up with the creative ideas. And the third stage, of course, is production. Now, I'm not going to discuss that at all because that depends upon the domain of creativity. But what about IQ? Well, as you probably know, okay, with IQ, when initially it was early on used, people called people who had IQ of over 130, 140 geniuses. And genius implies that you're tremendously creative. And it turns out there was a psychologist, I think at Stanford, whose name was Terman. And what Terman did was gave all the students in around San Francisco and all that area uh, an IQ test that he developed called the Stanford Binet. And then he followed all these people along. And it turns out some were very successful, some were just usual. But there were no Nobel Prize winners that was in his genius class. But it turns out that there were two Nobel Prize winners whose IQs were too low to be in terms geniuses that reached and got the Nobel Prize. So one was Shockley, who invented the transistor. And you know what that's meant to our world. And another one was Alvarez, who helped develop the radar. They both won Nobel Prizes, but they didn't have IQs high enough to be included in Terman's geniuses. So in general, people found out that later on, there was not a direct relationship between intelligence and creativity. And in general, a lot of people who've written about this say, you just need to be intelligent enough to learn the skills and knowledge in the creative domain that you're doing. People have a cutoff of about 110 or 120, but there is no direct relationship. 
So it's more of a yeah. threshold factor, right? That once you reach that threshold of somewhere between 110 and 120, there's not a correlation that the smarter you are, the more creative you are. No relationship. Now, it turns out that special talents are important. They're very, very important. But of course, the IQ test doesn't test special talents. So way back in the 1700s, there was a philosopher, Gaul, who was actually the founder of phrenology. But Gaul had two very important postulates. One postulate was that different parts of the brain perform different actions. And the second postulate was the better developed this module was, or this specific form, the better developed, the better it worked. Now, what happened was Gaul was aware that our skull growth depends upon brain growth. So we said, oh, if we measure the skull, maybe we can tell about people and what they are capable of doing. The problem with that is it became a pseudoscience and all these people were making all these crazy suggestions. But it turns out a neurologist in France in the mid-1800s, Paul Roca, heard a student of Gaul talking about the importance for the frontal lobes and speech. And he had a patient in the hospital who had a stroke sometime before, was actually dying of, I think, tetanus. And the patient had trouble speaking. He could understand, but he couldn't put out the speech. The patient died, and sure enough, he had a lesion in his frontal lobe. And then in the second paper, Paul Broca examined eight people who had problems with speech from strokes. All eight of them, they were right-handed, and all eight of them had left hemisphere strokes. So that provided a positive finding that really, in some way, supported Gaul's hypothesis. And we know that the left hemisphere understands speech. One of my mentors, Norm Geshwin, looked at a huge amount of people's brains at the auditory cortex in the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. And he found that the auditory cortex was actually bigger than most people in the left hemisphere. But even with great geniuses, sometimes their brains are different, but this hasn't really been evaluated today. I just want to interject or ask a question about the role of the left hemisphere and at least the theory and how that contributes to creativity. Because I remember in your book, which came out in 2010, it came out. I remember you described a number of what to me were surprising associations with higher creativity, including, for instance, being left-handed, epilepsy, having dyslexia, being slow in learning to speak, mental illness. And if I understood correctly, the general theory sort of connecting those was a suppression of or damage to the left hemisphere actually allowed the right hemisphere of the brain more license, I guess. And that may contribute to creativity. You're jumping ahead a little bit, okay? There have been studies, for example, by Bruce Miller, who's out in San Francisco. He looked at some people who had a degenerative disease, which mainly occurred in their left hemisphere, and their artistic skills actually became enhanced. And what was interesting, there hasn't been a lot of research looking at uh, true geniuses but one of the interesting stories about Einstein's brain, it turns out that Einstein said that it would be okay if they took his brain out and they examined it. He was in Princeton, New Jersey, and there was a pathologist whose name was Thomas Harvey. 
So Harvey took the brain out, and after it was fixated, he took a knife and he cut it into small blocks, 240 little blocks, and sent it all around the world to different people. (laughs) And he said, well, tell me why he was a genius. And people said, wait a minute, you gave me this little block of brain. How can I do anything? Well, the only thing that Harvey did was good was that he actually photographed uh, Einstein's brain after he took it out. And what was really interesting is that on the left hemisphere, there's a big, big valley called Sylvian fissure. It's a big fissure. And it separates the frontal lobe from the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe from the temporal lobe. And what was really interesting about Einstein's brain is that his Sylvian fissure didn't go all the way back. And it didn't actually go into the parietal lobe on the left side. It stopped really, really early. And after seeing that, people said, oh, that's why he was a genius, because he didn't have these big uh, sulci going to his prior lobe and dividing up his neuronal networks. Well, it turns out that one of the things we know about evolution is that the more gyri and sulci you have, it means the more cortex you have, okay? And that's not a sign of superiority. It's a sign that something is wrong. And if you look at his history, that part of the brain is very important for language. Einstein's parents brought him to the pediatrician when he was about three years old because he was not talking. And the other thing that was really interesting about Einstein's brain, if you look at it, is that his right frontal lobe was huge. Now, in addition, Einstein was also probably dyslexic. Again, that parietal lobe is important. The question comes up, did his less evolved left temporal lobe allow his right to actually be superior? And it turns out when you read all of Einstein's works about himself, he said he always used spatial reasoning. And could it be that he was such a genius because, again, his left hemisphere did not develop, but his right hemisphere really bloomed. Now, what's really important also, as we're going to talk about, the frontal lobes are very important for divergent thinking. And it turns out, as I mentioned, Einstein had a huge, huge uh, right frontal lobe. Ken, when we talk about divergent and convergent thinking, for listeners who aren't exactly sure what we mean by that, convergent thinking is when there's one or a couple of right answers and you're honing in on that right answer to a given problem. And divergent thinking is when there could be a range of different types of solutions to a problem. One sort of looking in and the other one sort of looking out. Let me talk a little bit about that because the very first step in innovation, the creative process, is disengagement. What do I mean by disengagement? You have to say, hey, this doesn't explain it or this is not the truth. And maybe one of the best examples of this is Copernicus, who said, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense that we're all revolving around the Earth, okay? There has to be other possibilities. Could it be that we're revolving around Mars or the Sun? And then after he disengaged from that, he went ahead and used divergent thinking What are the other possibilities? And he came up with a concept, hey, it's the sun. We're revolving around the sun. So the first step in creativity is, first of all, disengagement. I don't believe that's the way it's done. Maybe there's a better explanation. No one's ever painted this one. No one's ever written music. 
hey, here's a good novel no one's ever written about. So you disengage from what has been done. And then from there, you do divergent thinking, saying, hey, what are the alternatives? What are the possibilities? Now, it turns out from the neurological perspective, one of my mentors, Derek Denny Brown, a brain neurologist, said that all animals can do two things. They can approach or they can avoid. And he said, this is even true of humans. He said, it turns out that the frontal lobes are the disengaged avoid organ and the temporal and parietal lobes and the occipital are more for approach. And we know that when people damage their frontal lobes, what they do is they perseverate. In other words, they can't disengage. So if we give them a test where they have to organize cards in a certain way called the Wisconsin card sorting, once they get one successful one, that's it. They'll keep on repeating it, repeating it, repeating it something we call perseveration. And one of the things that we use to look at diversion thinking is something we call the alternative uses test. What you say to the person, okay, I'm going to give you an object. And what I want you to do is give me the different things that you can do with this object. But the more different it is, the more points you get. So for example, I give somebody a word, the brick. If they say, oh, you use it to build houses, to build fireplaces, you get maybe a point for each of those. If you say, oh, you know, you can use it as a doorstop or a bookend, you get two points. If you say, oh, you know, what you can do is take it in a bathtub with you. And after your bath, you can use it to rub off your calluses. You get three points. (laughs) So the idea is that's a test of divergent thinking, never creativity. So a lot of tests of creativity, one that's used a lot is called the Torrance test, where they have both verbal and visual spatial tests of divergent thinking. But as I said, this is only the first sub-stage of innovation. Now, a very important thing about innovation and creativity is curiosity and risk-taking. And that's very, very, very important. And the reason why so many people get into creative occupations is because to them it's very rewarding. So if you go back and you go through history and you look at artists and composers and whatever, even scientists, and what happened was financially they did terribly, but they wanted to create because it gave them great joy. And the best example is Galileo who proved Copernicus' thing. You know what the Pope did to him? Prison the rest of his life. Yeah. And it turns out they finally forgave him about 20 years ago because he showed that the sun was in the center of the universe. Now, it turns out that there's a place deep in our brain called the ventral striatum. And in animals, if you stimulate that, the animal will keep on doing whatever it was doing. It's very rewarding. And that whole system is a reward system, and it's also hooked up to the frontal lobe. And it turns out that the excitability of that system is very important for the drive and motivation. It turns out that that system was also abnormal in people who use drugs, and that's why, actually, you see a very high rate of drug abuse in people who do creative. So let me go to the third part of innovation. So after you disengage and say, hey, it has to be a better answer, do divergent thinking and say, hey, what are some possibilities? 
Okay, the next one and the critical element is finding the thread that unites. And William James, who's really one of the founders of uh, current psychology, said the thread that unites unheard of combinations of elements and subtle associations. And Spearman, another famous person, said creative ideas result from the combination of ideas that have been previously isolated. And perhaps the best example is Einstein's E equal MC squared. Prior to that time, they were isolated. So it's very important in the creative mode that the neurons in the brain and these modules that we're talking about, that they communicate with each other. And there's some evidence that that's true. So one of the great experiments showing about this communication was done by a neurosurgeon, Joe Bogan. And we talked about that the right hemisphere is important for visual, spatial, and the left for verbal. And they had epileptics who seizures couldn't be controlled. So they spread from one hemisphere to the other. So they were going to cut the connection between the two hemispheres, the corpus callosum, so the seizures couldn't go from one side to the other side. But Bogan was curious whether or not this would interfere with creativity. So they gave people the inkblot test. And the inkblot test, as you know, just has inkblots and you tell people, hey, what does this look like? And then you can judge the creativity. People like me say, hey, that looks like a moth. That looks like a bat. But a lot of people come up with very creative ideas. So he tested these people. And then after the colosum was cut, they retested them and the creativity was absolutely gone. Why? Because the visual system could not communicate with the verbal system. Makes sense. These various parts of the brain have to be constantly swapping information with each other. And in fact, when you record from the brain, the brain waves, when people are in a creative mode, their brain waves actually go ahead and have a certain type of coherence, like they're all communicating with each other. So in general, one of the things we ask is, how do we increase our networks? Well, one of the great stories about chemistry is about cuculene. They knew benzene had six carbons, but they didn't know how it was organized. So he was drowsing off to sleep when he imagined or dreamt about a snake biting his own tail. Came up with an idea, hey, it's a ring. But it turns out, if you look at almost all great creative ideas, People were almost always in a state of relaxation. Isaac Newton, when he came up with calculus and he came up with the laws of gravity, there was an epidemic, almost like ours, but I think it was a little bit worse. And they closed up Cambridge University. It was a plague. And so he went up to his mother's farm. And now he had plenty of time. And he sat under the apple tree and thought about these problems and came up with these ideas. When he went back to Cambridge after it was over, they gave all kinds of administrative jobs because he was so successful with the ideas. He didn't come up with much after that. Einstein came up with most of his theories late at night in the patent office when it was very, very quiet. Even when you think about when you get a great idea, you yell, Eureka. Well, it was Archimedes who came up with that idea, the concept of buoyancy. And what was he doing? He was taking a bath, another relaxing thing. The person who actually brought forth and proved the nerve theory of the brain was a Spanish physician, Raymond E. Cajal. 
And he wrote a book, actually, about creativity, which is an interesting book. In the book, he says, if a solution fails to appear, yet we feel success is around the corner, just try resting for a while. Now, another thing that we know about creativity is actually that one of the most creative types of people are people who have depression and bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, tend to be very, very creative. And so we thought, what's going on here about sleep, relaxation, depression, all those kind of things? Well, it turns out they're all similar in that in our brain, uh, we have a neurotransmitter called norepinephrine. And when you get norepinephrine, what happens is your attention goes externally rather than internally. So, for example, if you were a child and you were sitting in the back of your class just dreaming, daydreaming all the time, the teacher would say, hey, take your son or daughter to the doctor and get him some medicine. They give medicines like dexedrine. They increase norepinephrine. What do people do then? They attend to the teacher. They don't go into their own mind. If you're going to be creative, guess what you have to do? Go into your own mind. What do depressive people do almost all day long? Go into their own mind. So we actually wanted to test that theory. I did this with a fellow, David Biebersdorf. We gave normal participants an anagram test. You take words and you mix up the letters and you see how long it takes them to get the word. And some of them, we gave a medication called propanolol. It blocks norepinephrine. One of the bad side effects, it turns out, if people take it too long, is depression. And it turns out when we gave these people propanolol, this beta blocker of norepinephrine, guess what? They performed much better. Then with another fellow, George Garcibing, we know that when we treat epileptics, we found that one of the ways of doing it is by stimulating one of the cranial nerves called the vagus nerve. And what the vagus nerve does is actually increase the output of norepinephrine in the brain. And it's interesting because now they also use it to treat depression. And we gave creativity tests while we were stimulating and we weren't stimulating. And lo and behold, what do we find out? That when we stimulated them, their creativity went down. So in general, it's important to go ahead and be in a very relaxed state. It sounds like in general, there's this obviously complex interplay between left and right hemisphere and various areas of the brain. But if I had to sum it up, it seems to me in your book, a part of what you do is say that these various conditions in left hemisphere, whether they're through an accident of birth or an injury or a, a certain mental state we're in, the inclination to search for that conversion type of thinking and free up the more divergent type of thinking that may occur elsewhere in the brain for instance, like Einstein, the, the example he gave of him being delayed in his speaking clearly didn't make him not a creative person. It may have been just the opposite. This is important that when people get head injuries, the place that they injure most likely is the frontal lobes and the connections. And the frontal lobes are the critical thing, both for divergent thinking and for motivation to continue working and to actually produce the creative object or thought or whatever it may be. So note that's not generally true. There have been cases where people did get injured strokes, dementia, that enhanced the creativity. But remember, in those people, they paid a price. 
they were disabled. Mm -hmm. So yes, in certain unusual cases, brain damage can enhance it. But in most people, it interferes with every stage. The first stage, the preparation, it interferes with that. It interferes with divergent thinking. And it also interferes with convergent thinking. And if we could come back to the question earlier, how much of this is hardwired and you're basically born with this ability to do that creative type of thinking at a high level? And how much of it could be taught in schools or taught in workplaces and people could sort of make themselves be more creative in general? Now, you're asking a very, very important question that's gone on for centuries and centuries. In general, both are important. Nature is important. In other words, your brain development is important, and nurture is important. And those two things have to go together. So, for example, there's the famous story in Romania. The leader during communist times wanted to increase the population. So he encouraged people to have more and more children, and they couldn't afford the children, so they put them into these units. They fed them, but they didn't play with them. They didn't hug them. Guess what happened to these kids? They were all mentally impaired. Because they need that stimulation to have the brain growth. And this is true throughout life. So it's not purely nature because nurture helps develop the brain. And that's been shown. You need a combination of both. But I think it is very, very important growing up to be as stimulated as possible and to do as many new and novel things as possibly you can. One of the things that really troubles me about our educational system is that, in general, they downplay the opportunity for children to be creative. So who are the first teachers they fire when they have economic problems? The music teacher and those folks, right? Music teacher and the art teacher, yeah. right? And in general, how do they gauge how well somebody does? They gauge it by their knowledge. There's no test that they give them that really looks at their creativity. And none of the teachers in school talk about even how to enhance this creativity. And it's really a shame because it turns out there was a book written by Richard Florida. And in his book, he says something very, very important, which is coming to be true. In the future, the success of different nations and societies is not going to be based on people's labor, like labor in factories and so forth. It's going to be primarily based on creativity. America has been very, very fortunate because it was a country of immigration. And the people who came here said, hey, wait, I don't like what things are going on here. There must be a better way. Mm -hmm. And therefore, America has been a very creative country. My grandmother, who was a Jewish, grew up in Belarus, was pregnant with my mother. And she told her husband, I don't want to bring my kids up here. They're going to be stifled and treated badly. I want to go to America. And it turns out that America allowed people to become very creative. But we need to really foster that in our school systems. And we're not doing it. And we're doing everything the opposite way. So, for example, in medicine now, how do they decide how valuable you are? By how many relative value units. Mm -hmm. So I'll just tell you a story about me very briefly. I see patients with cognitive disorders, and usually in my afternoon clinic, I would see about four patients, but I was teaching medical students. And most of these patients were sent by other neurologists because they couldn't figure out what was going on with these patients. And if you go into PubMed and type my name, you'll see how many reports there are about unusual patients. 
I got a letter from an administrator at the University of Florida that said, you come to clinic at 12.30, you don't leave clinic until past six o'clock, and you only see four new patients. It wasn't really his fault. That is the mentality now. Mm -hmm. So even medicine... If you see something interesting, something that's different that you want to really look at and examine, you can't do it. So in so many domains, we're interfering in schools, in medical schools. We're interfering with really the growth of creativity, which takes time, rest, patience. Well, Ken, thank you very much. We're about out of time, but that's been a fascinating discussion about the relationship of creativity in the brain. And I'm thankful that somebody invented the internet and Zoom and laptops. Those creative folks made this conversation possible. So thank you to that wider community who makes these conversations possible. But thank you very much for joining us today on Radio K. Thank you for inviting me and for all the wonderful work you all are doing in enhancing creativity. Bob Cave is so wonderful finding out about the museum. It's something that's looking at attempting to enhance creativity. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for coming on, Ken. Appreciate it. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles is the podcast host, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.